0: Welcome back to the International Sisters Helpline with me, Jessie
1: from the UK. I'm Lina from Latvia. I'm Jennifer from Germany. And I'm Pauline from France. We are four European sisters on a mission to open up conversations on controversial and taboo topics. Our aim is to make women feel seen and valuable. Each episode,
2: we have guests that will help us shine some light on topics not spoken about enough.
1: Hi, lovelies, and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today we have a topic that sits very close to my heart and I'm sure it's the same with many women listening out there. Have you ever been told that you are too dramatic or that it's just your period by your doctor or medical professional? Well, I definitely have and unfortunately this is not a rare occurrence to be invalidated by doctors as a female patient as well as being invalidated by other patients and doctors as a female doctor yourself. So today we have our lovely guest, Scarlett McNally, who will help us put some light on the topic, which is sexism in healthcare. Would you like to
3: introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Thank you, it's lovely to be here. I'm Professor Scarlett McNally. I'm a consultant orthopedic surgeon in East Sussex, um, and I'm an honorary clinical professor at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. I've got various other things. I'm also president of the Medical Women's Federation and deputy director for the Center for Perioperative Care, which is trying to get care better for the bits around surgery, getting people fit for surgery, that kind of thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the papers that you write? I like writing stuff. (laughs) Um, And actually, the more you go as a surgeon, kind of the easier it gets because you can do the operations quite straightforwardly. You kind of recognize patterns with patients and you've got the whole team working with you. So I've got loads of extra time for writing. About 10 years ago, I looked at all the data for women applying to surgery to work out um, at what points, basically the the answer was that people were being put off surgery. We had 30% of the applicants to the core surgery were women. But by the time it got to higher surgery, becoming a registrar and going into a specialty, like two, three years later, only 15% were women. And basically people are being put off. So I I kind of published, I've published things like that. Um, I've got other publications on exercise, the miracle cure, trying to get people to do a bit of exercise, which is better than some of the medications that are out there. There's all sorts of things. I just kind of get a bit involved in. The exercise is a big theme. I've worked with various organizations. The best one probably is movingmedicine.ac.uk. And it teaches you how to have a conversation with people about putting more activity into their day. And it's got all the references in there. So um, I've put, I've got a website myself, actually, scarletmcnally.co.uk, which has got number of papers on or it always seems a waste to write something and then it just gets um, filed. And I've got a new role now writing in the BMJ, an editorial, so it's all my opinions on something every couple of weeks. Um, and that's quite fun. One of the latest
1: articles you wrote in BMJ on it, uh, International Women's Day was about how institutions and individuals can reduce sexism in healthcare. You wrote that there were more women than men in the medical school in the UK in the last 30 years. However, more than 90% of female doctors have experienced sexism at work. Can you elaborate how female doctor professionals are treated differently?
3: I mean, it's partly an extension of society. Um, People just make assumptions on the first thing that they notice about someone. And sadly, that's often their gender, their size, their skin colour. So a lot of it is from patients. They just assume that you're not the doctor. Um, Or they'll have a long consultation and say, thank you, nurse. When will I see the doctor? Or on a ward round, they'll assume, this even happens to me as a consultant. I've been a consultant for 21 years. They'll assume that the handsome man is in charge. It's not just from the patients. It's also from the staff questioning the women doctors a little bit more than they would the male doctors. And the evidence I've got for that is actually from the United States of America. But they call microaggressions just little Put downs. I've seen some research in uh, from the Royal College of Physicians' um, chief registrars. So these the registrars are kind of running around the hospital, running <laughs> the whole show at night and weekends and everything, dealing with really difficult medical problems, and that they get treated differently by the staff by the patients um, uh, than the male doctors do, and people just don't realise they're doing it. That's part of the problem. Um, the A lot of them don't realise they're doing it. And then there are other problems with progression in training. And we we published something in about surgeons that if you ask a female registrar, oh, do you want to do this case? Have you done any before? They'll go, oh, I'm not completely sure. I have seen them. I've done a couple, you know, a little bit less confident, should we say. Whereas if you ask a male registrar, they're more likely to say, oh, yes, no problem at all. (laughs) Um, And from a patient safety point of view, that's a bit of a problem. But it's also that we kind of reward that bravado, macho and that presenteeism, and there are little comments made to people who take time off for maternity leave or they are working part time, less than full time training or flexible working. Um, and often people work part time, actually pro rata do more because I work part time now. And so all my clinics are full with really difficult cases because anything that's easy gets moved on to another day when I'm not there because my clinic slots are at a premium. It's, so it's, there's quite a lot of it about, there's a lot more than I realised. I thought, you know get the women through the pipeline and it'll all be fine but actually it really really isn't and we need to do more to change that
1: you mentioned before that you're now a president of the medical women's federation and uh, as far as i know one of your focuses is the gender pay gap in surgery by the way we recently recorded an episode on gender pay gap so hope you give it a listen as well um what reasoning can you give to female doctors being paid less if they're expected to do more
3: this has only been recognized in the last five years or so there was a report that came out and it got all the data, which is really good data, it's so lovely now, being president of the Medical Women's Federation, I'm now on the groups that are trying to look into how to improve it. So I was at a meeting with the Department for Health and Social Care just yesterday, and they are trying to go through each bit of this report and its recommendations to work out how to improve things. There's basically about a 30% difference between what men and women are paid at the same kind of level uh, for doctors. And part of that is explainable in terms of women have taken time out for maternity leave and haven't come back to the same kind of level of work. But about half of it isn't explainable. And it's probably to do with people negotiating their job plan and getting some extra sessions paid. Um, It's partly to do with men tending to take on the roles that are paid, such as medical director, only 29% of medical directors, as in, you know, the chief doctor at a hospital, which is paid extra, are only 29% of women. And, and whereas women tend to get the things like being a mentor or teaching lead or something which might not be paid um, so much. And, and they tend to take the more flexible things they can fit around the childcare. So it fits into society, not valuing the role of mothers. People aren't being put forward for those roles. They're not You don't get a tap on the shoulder going, oh, do you want to apply to be medical director? People haven't seen you as being a medical director because you don't fit the mold. That's all a bit of a jumble of what and why and all that kind of thing. But there are a lot of things in there. And some of it is how the women put themselves forward. Some of it is how they are perceived. And some of it's how structures are. I was on the Council of the Royal College of Surgeons of England for 10 years. And we wrote a booklet, you can still find it, called Avoiding Unconscious Bias, A Guide for Surgeons. And you can't actually avoid unconscious bias but it's trying to train people what to do when they have an instant look at someone and think, my word, they don't look old enough to be on my team. It's kind of what you, you don't say that. You say, ah, oh, welcome to the team. It's lovely to have a new face. You know, you kind of, you just think of something to say when your sensible brain catches up. So it's kind of training people and then training people to apply the same criteria if you're supporting people and, and also to allow for a little bit of people not being perfect all the time.
1: So now I want to bring up gender bias and data collection. You mentioned that a little bit. For example, women have different heart attack symptoms than men, but the diagnosis criteria and methods still favors male biology. And another example I shared in Harvard Health, 70% of those affected by chronic pain conditions are women, whereas 80% of pain research is conducted on males. In the past, many scientists believed that males made the best test subjects because they do not have menstrual cycles and cannot become pregnant. I even heard that in the past they only used the uh, male rats test because male rats didn't have uh, menstrual cycles. And uh, this meant that a vast amount of research only involved male participants. And as a result, many studies from before the 90s are flawed. Have you noticed the effect on gender bias in data collection in your
3: professional history? That's a good question because I'm an orthopedic surgeon. So there's a little bit of evidence about women athletes who have tendon ruptures um, being related to the menstrual cycle, actually. But basically, I don't know what I don't know, if you see what I mean, because it's all based on what we have. So we can't, I kind of haven't seen what we haven't got. And the big problem, I think, is that people don't. Put the conditions into people's everyday lives. So, for example, one of the biggest use of NHS beds and operations is hip fractures, and these predominantly occur in women. There's something like seventy-five thousand a year in the UK alone. You know, we, we know how to treat them. We've got best practice idea. You know how which what sort of operation to do. That we've got to get people up moving afterwards quickly, so that they don't get blood clots and chest infections and so forth. So we we kind of got the pathway right, but actually. A huge amount of osteoporosis is preventable, probably half. People aren't looking at that, people or people aren't aware of that you know, we should be going out for a walk with a granny rather than bringing her cup of tea to her, you know, because it really is use it or lose it. And so it almost feels like a lot of academia is just focusing on the really, the bits we've always done. Um, What kind of stent put into a heart attack patient, for example, rather than what could we do to change society so that people are more active? Um, How do we stop uh, companies putting really bad food in, you know, around schools? Because healthcare is so focused on that Ultimate amazing clean shiny macho surgery.
1: In 2016, the World Health Organization found that although women in the European Union live longer than men, they spend more time of their lives in poor health. Also, pregnancy can be a death sentence for women and girls in low to lower middle income countries. Often, this is due to gender biases and due to a lack of infrastructure when it comes to healthcare. And this is just the tip of an iceberg on the issue globally. Which countries would you say? take the lead in bringing awareness to sexism and healthcare and making a change? In
3: Iceland, for example, men take more leave at the time a baby's born than in other places. And that forms a better bond and they understand about being a parent better. There are some countries that deal with, they call it the the motherhood penalty that you know you're trying to balance for a lot of women for you know a decade and a half you're trying to balance children and work but places where there's better involvement of the father or the second parent are better for women's career progression again it, it, that's something we only two percent of men in the UK take up shared parental leave that's when they take more than a couple of weeks off to look after the, the baby um, and I think it's because it's set up badly because you know you have to share it and, and the men don't get remunerated Rated as much as they ought to be most places Scandinavian countries do, do stuff better because they've thought about it and they've put in structures and they have a different culture but sadly in the UK we are woefully behind and I think it's getting slightly worse I'm afraid to say
1: how does it get worse do you think
3: because there's so little money in the NHS and because there are rotor gaps and not enough nurses, not enough doctors, everyone is a little bit stretched. They can't do the nice stuff. They can't do the stuff that takes a bit more time. For example, a lot of administrators spend their time trying to fill rotors where there aren't people to do it and they end up kind of pressurising people to take on more work that they can't do. It feels like there isn't capacity in the system for people to value each other as much as they should, go to meetings together, kind of do things nicely. (music) Now I would like to talk about this
1: topic from a female patient perspective. There's a stereotype that men are less aware of health problems and generally visit the doctor less often as women. So in other words, there's a phrase that men are silent stoics while women are hysterical hypochondriacs. And female hysteria was once a common medical diagnosis for women as well. So I would like to ask my co-hosts if they had any experience where they were being discriminated or treated differently differently because they are female patients? Well,
2: I can start. So I have the same doctor since I'm born, and I don't know if that's because she knows me too well or for too long, but I feel like lately she doesn't take me seriously on some issues that I have, and I've had them for a long time. I'm suffering from ovarian pain and bulimia, and every time I'm mentioning it, she, like, doesn't take me seriously. I had to fight to get to do tests because she thought I wasn't in in enough pain to do it and it was just like not normal. I knew that something wasn't okay. Like she just wouldn't believe me, which is crazy because she's a woman. So she should understand,
1: I think. I honestly relate to this so much because last year I had also a lot of pain in my lower abdomen and I couldn't understand what was happening. And I tried to go to different doctors and sometimes it was so bad that I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't move. I even went to A&E. I went to walk-in center. I called my GP. I tried everything. And they all would say that they would like maximum they would do is just like push on my abdomen and it would hurt. And I would start crying and they'd be like, well, there's nothing we can do. Take paracetamol. And that's it. They wouldn't do any tests and I was like can't you at least do an ultrasound or anything they'd be like we don't have ultrasound in our clinic go somewhere else and it would be happening like this for four months in a row and I would keep calling and calling and calling because it wouldn't get better I had to quit my job because I couldn't work anymore because of the pain and in the end I managed to see a gynecologist and I had a surgery and I actually had a cyst and I had a adhesions so basically my left ovary was stuck to my abdomen and despite all of that and this and the, the cyst that they removed i felt a lot better but the doctors wrote in my records that it was ibs that i had even though i don't have ibs and my husband has ibs so i know exactly how it looks like and i don't have that like they clearly removed an issue that helped But they still wrote, oh, it's just IBS. I started going to the doctor
0: for similar things when I thought I had an ovarian cyst as well. And I had to go through so many different doctors because, well, a lot of them were, I don't know if this was intentional, but it came across like they thought it was just in my head or I was just being really dramatic about the actual level of pain, which I wasn't, because if it wasn't that painful, I wouldn't have gone to the doctor. I guess I was naive, but I kind of thought that after one appointment, we'd start investigating what it was, but we didn't. I had to go to a lot of different doctors to finally get one that actually took me seriously and actually wanted to investigate to finally be referred to the hospital after like a month or two from the original appointment to investigate what was actually going on. But I just think that was bizarre because surely a doctor's responsibility is to trust their patient and to listen to them when they have any concerns with their own body because nobody knows their own body better than themselves. But Yeah, sometimes it can just really feel like I'm not being taken seriously.
2: Yeah, so last year I suffered from a very bad cystitis. It was really, really bad. Like After a certain period of time, I couldn't even walk normally without severe pain. So I walked to many doctors. And only the fourth or fifth one could actually help me and could actually find out what I had. And I had kind of the feeling that they took me seriously, but not enough seriously with my pain. They asked questions, of course, and they did tests. But... They did not really um, like had empathy with my pain when I was waiting in the waiting room. And I, I had like the worst pain and I could not really stand it anymore. But they didn't even notice it. And I hadn't even have strength to talk to them that I have pain and that I really need to be like that a doctor needs to be with me now and that I can't wait anymore. And yeah, this really affected me a lot. And. I needed a long time to hear physically but also kind of emotionally that so many doctors couldn't help me and that they didn't really take me seriously in my needs.
1: Scarlett, is there anything you would like to add before we finish? Or maybe there's a question you wish I'd asked? I just want to say thank you
3: for sharing those stories. It's really powerful and I think it helps change things. But the downside actually is because we've got this model of healthcare that's kind of very macho, that the people who do spend time listening to and talking to their patients who tend to be women take a bit longer, their clinics overrun, they don't get to do the, you know, surgeries or whatever they need to do to achieve more with their own career. So I think we need to change the whole system. And just to say for people coming through, there is a lot of sexism. Sometimes you kind of think, did I did I imagine that? Have I just got treated differently? Because you know, you kind of think, oh maybe it was maybe I'm just imagining it, but you're not. (laughs) It's not just a question of going to HR and complaining. It's trying to change the system so that people know there are things you just shouldn't say. So kind of, we need to change the system. We need to get the men there as allies. And what I didn't need, because I weren't around at my time particularly, was actually networks of women work quite well. And the Medical Women's Federation, we're trying to build up local networks for people. So you've got someone to talk through, So the medical students, the doctors, got someone to talk to.
1: Well, thank you so much for being in today's episode. It was very informative, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it as much as we did. Don't forget to check out Scarlett's website, ScarlettMcNally.co.uk, and her Twitter, ScarlettMcNally. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. You. Have a good day.
2: this episode of international sisters helpline remember to check us out on our instagram where you can interact with us and have the opportunity to be involved in future episodes and subscribe to our newsletter if you want to hear more from
0: us that's all for now guys see you next episode bye